The federal hiring process may be just on the verge of a long-needed transformation. The Chance to Compete Act seeks to modernize the way agencies hire by using skills as the basic criterion, shared certificates, and subject matter expertise. The bill easily cleared the House earlier this year. Now it has bipartisan support in the Senate. But federal HR experts say that without the right investments, the Chance to Compete Act, if enacted, would fall short of expectations. We get more now from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And let's go through some of the Chance to Compete Act provisions, Drew. What does it say about that idea of skills-based hiring? This is something that has become very popular, very prevalent in recent years, something that's been talked about a lot more, this idea of skills-based hiring. It's not necessarily new. The Trump administration issued an executive order encouraging agencies to focus on skills-based hiring. But the Chance to Compete Act would take that a little bit step further just by codifying some of that language and building on it as well. So as part of the bill, OPM, one requirement for them would be that they have to build a platform detailing job duties that do have minimum educational requirements and reviewing different job descriptions to ensure that the educational requirements are there where they make sense, but then removing them when they don't make sense It's become quite popular for difficult-to-fill positions. For example, in cybersecurity, you're going to have a lot of people who may have gotten their skills elsewhere, not necessarily in college. So, you know, this has been a big push from presidential administrations and now in Congress. The Chance to Compete Act would just take it another step further. And then the idea of subject matter experts are also central in this bill. Again, not a brand new idea. And how would it change the use of subject matter experts? I guess who decides who's a subject matter expert, too, might be a question. Right. That is a good question. But the the bill generally sets the use of subject matter experts as more of a standard. So bringing them into the hiring process early and more often, both in creating job announcements as well as conducting resume reviews. This would be a requirement. Bring in subject matter experts to assess candidates on their technical skills and how they would fit into the organization. Again, it's something that agencies have been doing at least in a couple of pilots. For example, the Department of Health and Human Services, they've used SMEs a lot in the hiring process. They say it's been quite successful for them. Many agencies who have used it do say it is a really good practice, but there's also some challenges with that as well. Bob Levitt, who's Chief Human Capital Officer at HHS, explained why that's so difficult. Successful hiring is a function of that partnership. At the same time, some of the challenges that we see in doing this is that, to be brutally blunt, is the availability of time in some cases. Hiring managers, for example, or subject matter experts are also uh, fulfilling their mission and advancing mission. And uh, particularly over the past few years, as the Department of Health, um, the employees across the department have been prioritizing mission, advancing mission, and having the availability Uh, for uh, that is commensurate with the level of hiring that we've been doing is it is honestly challenging to balance those time requirements. Yeah, everybody's busy, but you need to spend the time you need to spend. If it comes to hiring people, you've got to just find it. And now, Drew, this bill also focuses on use of shared certificates. What are those and how would they work in federal hiring? Sharing certificates is something that agencies can do and have been able to do since a law from 2015. It generally lets agencies share a list of qualified applicants for a position. Once they've made a couple of hires, then they can give that list to other agencies who are hiring for a similar position. So it reduces some of the burden on HR staff in theory. They have, 
you know, the qualified lists already. And that means you get a little bit faster hiring process. You get more time to focus on the candidates you have on the list. And then from the applicant's perspective, they can see just one application reaching a lot more openings. So, you know, this is has been popular for agencies more recently, and it's gained a little bit of traction, but it did have a slow build. Jenny Mattingly, Vice President of Government Affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, explained what happened after the 2015 Competitive Service Act. That was really the first step to enabling agencies to be able to share share certs. But that hadn't really been, even though the law had passed, that really wasn't a way that agencies did hiring. And so what happened, I think, is OPM would run an action. They'd have all these assessments. They get this great list of candidates. And then any agency could select off of that. What we saw from that is that OPM could do it. This idea of can agencies actually also do some of that work. That conversation has been ongoing and we've seen more pulled hiring actions. We haven't seen a lot of search sharing yet. And so I think this bill tries to address some of those issues. It puts this idea that we need to leverage economies of scale. And that's Jenny Mattingly of the Partnership for Public Service. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, and there's a big push toward technical assessments in the Chance to Compete Act. This thing is chock full. What are those, and how would that be different from how agencies do things now? There is a bigger push toward technical assessments rather than what agencies often use, which is self-reporting questionnaires. Lots of agencies use this in the hiring process, but it is a problem. For example, if you look at data from the General Services Administration, they have a dashboard showing that 92% of competitive open to the public job announcements relied on just the answers to a self-reporting questionnaire plus a resume review to determine if someone was eligible for a position. But of that 92%, just about half actually resulted in a hire. So there is kind of this drop-off between you know, using self-reporting questionnaires as the basis for determining if someone is qualified and then actually getting to that qualified person at the end of the day. It's also an issue for diversity and trying to get more applicants in the door. I heard more from Rob Seidner, who is a former Hill staffer who actually helped draft the Chance to Compete Act and a former senior career leader at the Office of Management and Budget. Most of them are going to undermark themselves if they don't feel that they can do anything and they also don't want to look too arrogant so they're going to say yeah you know i could do most of it but i always have more to learn the people who do well on them frankly are people who are going to say yeah i really am an expert i can do all of this people don't even get seen you don't get far enough down the list for people to have a chance to compete. Well, it's certainly a good way to get rid of something that has been a bugaboo for at least the 30 years I've been following this, and that's called the KSAs, the Knowledge, Skills, and Abilities Statements. And people were complaining about those tomes, you know, so long ago. So these are all better ways of getting around that. About the context, too, that we mentioned at the top, some of the federal HR watchers said that there would be challenges because money or what? That is part of it. It's the idea of, you know, having enough funding for HR staffs. Generally, they are pretty small staffs, although they work, you know, very hard. As a lot of these experts say, they have a problem with resources. It's not to mention, you know, there's some issues with OPM as well. They would have a lot of new requirements under the Chance to Compete Act that they'd have to help agencies carry out these hiring practices. For example, earlier this year, there was a GAO report showing that OPM has its own list of internal skills gaps 
that might prevent it from helping other agencies. There's also been a lot of leadership turnover at OPM. Now the House Appropriations Committee is proposing cuts to their budget. So there's a lot of challenges that OPM might face to actually carry out some of the language of this bill, although it has very significant support, very strong support behind the Chance to Compete Act. It would take a lot of legwork to actually get this off the ground and running if it was enacted. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll watch the upcoming legislative session to see what they do and if they take up that bill. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joins Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, 
I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, 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 it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.